It's really personal, isn't it? The gospel. It's personal. And the vividness of God's scripture, the vividness of Old Testament story just drives home abstract concepts of the New Testament that we, we just, we can't really get all the weight of them when they're spoken in their tight sentences. But then God has given us the Old Testament. It's, it's the Word of God. Amen? And it's, it's all the Word of God, new and old, all valuable, and uh, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, the things we've been listening to all week. And uh, so I think tonight's story is going to speak the truth of that song very vividly. The verse that I'd like you to concentrate out of Corinthians um, is this section. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Every story we've taken out of the Old Testament that goes in this little context of Corinthians, every story has people in it that are causing other people to trip up. We each choose our own sin, but make no mistake, when you sin, you are a ready agent to help others follow the same bad path. And that just multiplies the impact of our sin. Uh, one of the things that really should, as you mature in Christ, grab your attention always is, is this helpful to the people around me? Because you may have absolute freedom. There may be things that just don't, just don't trip you up at all. And you probably could enjoy them without sin. But the people that God has sent you to love who are near you, it could devastate them. And I'm telling you, Scripture would tell us that if we're one body and we love one another, we will not be a part of those things. It's interesting that right ahead of this, it's talking about don't have any idolatry. Because I don't know about you, when someone looks at me and goes, I don't think you should really do that because that's harmful to these people. I'm like, oh my goodness, would those people just grow up? <laughs> you know, would they just get mature in Jesus so I can have my freedoms? Because I really like what I like, right? And I can be immediately idolatrous. Because I'm not thinking about Christ. I'm not thinking about his impact and what he wants for my life. I'm just thinking about the things that I want to enjoy. Um, they're lawful. I mean, in other words, some of these things, they're just not even sinful by themselves. But I do believe the passage is telling us that if we're not seeking good for our neighbor, pretty soon we're into idolatry, which is not lawful. Okay? It's not, it's not biblical. At that point, we are sinning. I love the fact, too, that Paul doesn't list Make some list here because in every culture, in every place, the different places each of us live, it's going to be very different how you're going to have to live out those verses that are tucked into this context. Um, those verses, if, you know, some of you like to concentrate on different things, if you concentrated on those as we talk through the two stories, they would illustrate them in, in some unique ways. Um, when we choose to sin, of course, boy, that's just deadly for the people around us. You may think your sin only impacts you, but that is never true. It will make impact far, way further than you could ever imagine. It can very quickly become generational in its impact. And uh, the people that I'd speak to first on that are not the young people in this room. Old people. My wife says I'm not allowed to say that up front, but it is in the book of Titus, okay? But old people, you know who you are. 
I'm fast, fast finding my way there in most crowds. You know, going to be here for Senior High Week next week? Yep, I'm old. Um, you know, so us old people, when we sin, there are a lot more people behind us following us. So we have to be even tighter on these verses. With that kind of into context, we're covering in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. So if you're still there, go down a little further, uh, or go up, I guess, to verses 7. Uh, It says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That sounds a little bit like camp. (laughs) I feel like every other minute I'm sitting down to eat. And then we get up and play. <laughs> there's, there's more context, I think. Let me, let me just start that again. I don't think it's camp, all right? The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. And don't grumble. We're back to that term. Um, The story that I picked, there may be a couple. Matter of fact, I had to work kind of hard to be sure I've narrowed to what I think is the context uh, that Paul is talking about. So if you went to Numbers 21, you'd be glad to know there's two stories tonight. So this is, you know, you get twice the bang for your buck and chapel's going to be really long. I'm kidding. They're short stories tonight, okay? So in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9, it says this. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, And the people became impatient on the way. Hmm. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. So we're back to grumble. But now we have this new word, impatient. I don't like words like impatient. Do you? Because like how far is, is it before I'm not patient? Or how patient do I have to be so I'm not impatient? It seems like like, no easy answer. Like, can you just, like, define that a little more, someone, please? And that's why the spiritual walk is so much in the spirit, isn't it? And in the body, so we don't cause others to trip up. And so sometimes the patience that God is calling for seems a bit extreme. I think Scott was talking this week about living in the mundane. I find the mundane is the place where extreme patience is needed. And yet... I also come to contexts like Corinth where some of the people were godly and there was a whole slew of people at Corinth that were backbiting, fighting, quarreling, and very sexually immoral. And that had to be incredibly distressing to the righteous people. And if they weren't careful in their distress, they could fall headlong into their own sin category called impatience and grumbling. (laughs) So yeah, got the grumbling. Good. Impatience and grumbling. So they're impatient. They speak against God, against Moses. That's the complaining and grumbling. And they say, you almost could quote this by now, right? They're going to die or complain about dying. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. (laughs) That's the food that God miraculously puts on the ground six days a week. I mean, you think there's no food and water, like not enough variety? How starving. 
Americans think they're starving in like a day. We're not really like most of the rest of the world who understands this a little differently. But going without food, without choice, is very difficult. I've not really had to do much of it. And uh, I'm telling you, but then to look and say, what you're providing, God, it's, it's just worthless food. <laughs> you might judge them, except I would just say that uh, manna and what Paul has just said earlier about Christ being the bread, we, we say the same thing, don't we? Say, God, I know, I know you've given me everlasting life. I know you've worked in my life. I know Christ is right here, but, but this is so hard. Uh, translated a different way. This Jesus, he's kind of worthless in the context of what I'm going through. Now, we don't say that out loud generally, although I've gotten close a few times, even in studying Scripture. Studied a passage in Hebrews once, you know, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And some of you have heard me tell this story. And it dawned on me after I worked hard trying to really understand what that means. So what is the reward? And then I finally dawned on me of those who seek him. So the reward is Jesus. And in my brain I went, that's it? That's not funny. That's blasphemy. As soon as my mind clicked that way because my heart was so wrong, I realized I'm saying the same thing. God... It's so hard here, and all you gave me was this worthless Jesus. That's, that's not good. God didn't think it was good either, <laughs> just so you know. Verse 6, he says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, which is my wife. I mean, this gives my wife the creepy crawlies, just so we're clear. So we lived in Wisconsin a long time, and I think in 20 Almost five years, my wife saw one snake in Wisconsin. We were careful to hide the rest of them from her. There were a few more, but not too many. Since we have lived in our new half acre, which is not a very big piece of property, we live on our new half acre, my wife has seen three snakes. Yeah, she even killed one. She said, my hatred overcame my fear. Yeah, and she shoveled that thing, and then she repented to Jesus because she just killed this creature. I'm like, you are a conflicted lady. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's a snake. You know what I mean? I think enmity in the garden clears you of all debt. You know, kill that thing. You know, I don't know. But, um, and today we were walking on a path, and you had one of your snakes scare her, and she held my hand. I thought she was getting romantic. It was just a snake. <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's not funny. No. <laughs> um, snakes, snakes are nasty, but even worse, can you imagine if they were just cut loose in the way that God does things like, like he did in Egypt with frogs, you know what I mean? So these fiery serpents are anywhere he wants them to be among the people, and they bit the people so that many of the people died. So people are dying. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. This is actually a bit of an encouragement in the passage. One of the first times there seems to be a level of repentance right? We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. They even named their sin correctly. So it's actually a little bit of an encouraging passage. He said, they say, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And, you know, you wish they would just themselves turn to the Lord, but even still, at least they were going the right direction, saying the right things. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. 
So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. I wonder, kind of like our Merg thing, I wonder how many times somebody was impatient in their tone and God had a snake like come out from underneath, you know, the tent carpet, whack, you know, and get them and they're like, oh man, that was impatience, wasn't it, God? Open the tent, look at the, look at the bronze serpent and, and keep from death. You, you just wonder, don't you, on some of those things. Let's look at this story, just the, the people in it for a moment like we've been. We have the impatient people of Israel who see their sin. They've spoken against God. They do repent. They ask for the snakes to be gone. God doesn't do that, does he, right away? We actually don't know how long this went on. But God provided a way of escape. That sounds a lot like 1 Corinthians, doesn't it? He provides a way of escape. He does not always take out the snake, right? He doesn't always take away the hardship. He doesn't always take away the trial. But he provides the way of escape, the way of help. Obviously, well, then you have Moses. He's spoken against again, but he prays, he listens, and then he obeys God, makes the serpent, puts it on a pole. Those may seem like simple things, but I, I love simple obedience. It's so right. And then you have the bitten dead. And you know what they are? Dead. I learned that from my three-year-old. He, he fed his fish Ritz crackers with his buddy. It looked like fish food crumpled up. And the fish died. And I was worried, you know, my three-year-old, does he understand death? And uh, so I'm like, got the fish. We're out by the garden. I'm like, Rob? I mean, why does a dad ask a three-year-old this? But Rob, you know, you know what it means when you're dead? He goes, yeah, when you're dead... You're dead. Sums it up. Let's bury it. All right? You know? But you, th- you th- all the theology I learned from a three-year-old. But in John, you know, we look at this, these bitten dead, and then you look at the bitten who live. And God didn't waste their difficulty, did he? It's a picture that John brings out by the inspiration of God in John three fourteen. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. They lived because they looked at the snake. Jesus, again, an early picture of what belief really looks like. Um, to act on what knowledge we have of God and put our dependence on that. They could have in their mind stayed in the tent and said, I'm visualizing the snake and they're going to die. They could say, well, I do believe that if I looked at that pole, I would live. And they would die. They needed to obey God, his pattern, what he set up. And for us, what is that? To trust, to have real belief that says, I'm not just thinking these things, but my attention, my dependence is upon Jesus Christ and that he died on the cross for my sins. So very simple. Just like looking at the pole in the wilderness. I have to ask you, have, have, has your simple faith, have you put your eyes on Jesus and said, I know he is it? And to talk to him personally and say, Lord, I'm trusting in you for my salvation. Such a trust that action comes out of it. And they're looking at the snake captures that understanding. Knowledge, action, trust all put together. 
The bitten had a way of escape. The church at Corinth, will you be, I think Paul's looking at them, says, will you be impatient or will you believe? Will you be impatient or will you believe? Will you grumble? Will you have idols or will you believe? Story two. Well, wait a minute. I, gotta, I don't want to mess you up. Look at, lay down in your notes, and let's look at what God, what it teaches us about God for a minute. First story. First thing, he hates complaining. You ought to really fix my notes and put impatience with that. Okay, because complaining's there, but I kind of missed the more important word. He hates impatience. In uh, James 5, he talks about the complaining idea, and I, I haven't shared this verse this week, but in James 5, verse 7, let me just read that for you. He says, and it talks about patience. He said, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And don't grumble with one another. Boy, it almost sounds like James was reading the Old Testament, doesn't it? Um, so he's looking at us and he's saying, the farmer, he doesn't plant the seed, come back the next day and kick the dirt and say, I can't believe there's no corn on the cob to eat. He doesn't do that. He understands. There's a process here. There's time. But there is a day coming where that fruit has, has value. He says, be patient. I don't know about you. There is nothing natural about being patient for me. As a pastor, I'm always the one pushing. Like, and, and I did that wrong a lot as a pastor. Um, I wanted right things. That was righteous. But being impatient for God, impatient with his people, that is not. And impatience almost always leads to grumbling about something, just like James says. He says, no, have an eternal mindset. I've told you many, many of you this, but my wife for quite a period of time helped me with this on a regular basis. I'd come home and I've been pushing and working at church and I'm impatient. I'm like, you can't believe. And I get in a New York state of mind because that's where I'm from. That's what the N stands for. (laughs) The shirt was free. Okay. Um, Anyway. Yeah, that does explain it, doesn't it? So I'm in a New York state of mind, talking a mile a minute, not very happy. And my wife, she's just really quiet. So it took her like 15 years of marriage before she'd do this. But she'd look at me and she'd say, five minutes into heaven, is this going to matter? Well, that's still doing New York with no words, right? No, no, no. She never said it when it mattered, right? Of course I was wrong. She was trying to help me understand, wait for the day of the Lord, right? I mean, this is his timing on every aspect. And don't, don't grumble. Because God hates impatience and complaining. And he disciplines those he loves. Amen? Amen? You should say it because I'm telling you, I had a deacon who... Uh, long before he was a deacon, he had a real falling out with God and did some evil. And he'd grown up in church, and he basically blew his whole life up when he was in his late 20s. And God chased him down. That's right, because God loves us. You know, he sends the serpents to get our attention. And he chased him down. And this man would say, I know I'm a believer 
because of what God's word says. And one of the things is that God chastens those he loves. Because, boy, if he was punitive, we'd all be dead. But he loves us, so he disciplines us. He, he, he exercises us in a positive way, and he chastens us. He, he corrects us, as we've been talking about all week. He disciplines those he loves. So if he's disciplined, you don't, don't fight him. Just see it that way. And he provides a way of escape for the sinner, and that way is Jesus for salvation and for every sin. Second story. Let's go to that. Second story, <clears throat> I think, is found in Numbers 25, um, and it captures other parts. And I'm just telling you, I'm glad the little kids aren't in here tonight because this would be more toward the uh, R-rated section of Scripture. I apologize, but it's God's Word, so I won't, really. Um, we need to see it. Numbers 25, 1 through 17, says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They prostituted themselves. And these that they were prostituting themselves with invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. And the fierce anger of the, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. And behold, and, and it's hard because scripture is written in brevity, okay? There's pauses where these actions actually take place. Okay, they obeyed. I think the judges hung those uh, chiefs of the people. And I think if you do the math between the New Testament account and the Old Testament and you figure it all out, they hung a thousand of them. That's, that's anger. And we focus on the anger, but wait a minute, why... Why is God so angry? Because he is so very holy. And, and we don't come to grips with that this much. Matter of fact, when I was studying this, I'm like, whew, this is, in our politically correct, culturally sensitive, over-the-top emotional culture, um, these passages are going to strike strangely. So let them strike strangely to pull you into norm, Okay? God hates idolatry. And as it says in James, he is jealous for you, his believer. And when you love the world, James clearly calls you adulterers and adulteresses. We, and I'm going to say we, there, there is no believer in this room that has not prostituted themselves to the being a, by being a friend of the world, right? Every one of us have done that. We have loved the stuff of the world. And some of you are still really loving that. And you say, I've never been with a prostitute. Stay with the passages I'm quoting, okay? And if you've been with a prostitute, definitely, 
You've, you've done this. If you looked at a woman to lust after her, you're here in this category. If you have loved your trans am, I picked that because they don't still make them, so it's probably a little fewer people, you know. But like, if you love your car or your old tractor, and I don't even know what ladies like, so you're off the hook tonight. You have to do your own math, okay? But if, <laughs> I just don't know. <laughs> but whatever it is that makes you mad at God because it goes away, It can even be our children. You say, I'm supposed to love my children, not more than God. That is an unsafe equation. It will harm your family. We are friends of this world. Almost our whole life, because our minds have trouble getting outside the dimension, but almost our, our whole life, everything we sense is connected to earth. It's hard for us, except in the spiritual, to get past that. So it is so, so easy to prostitute ourself and do idolatry. Like Israel, like Corinth, like us. So these guys are rotting in the sun. Are we back to the story? That's awful image. I told you, it's, it's not nice. And they've begun to kill the judges, the people that are, have pursued and have loved the Midianites and have yoked themselves. They were unequally yoked. Does that sound like a New Testament passage, young people that you know? Your parents quote it to you all the time, I'm sure. And they should, with passion. You marry outside of the faith. You marry someone who claims the faith but isn't passionate about God. You have nothing but trouble in front of you. You will be pulled away. The the formula is right here. And those of you who are married to lost people and you're already married there, don't be pulled away to evil. Live gloriously righteous right there. There are other passages for that. That's not what the sermon's about. If you struggle with my sermon, come talk to me. We'll get it fixed. All right? Can't say everything. But man, he says they're yoked. He says... While this is all happening, people rotting, people dying, he says, behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they're, they're focused on God at the tent of meeting, probably waiting for God to come down and fix this royal mess because people are having to die. They're rotting in the sun and they're wondering who else is going to have to die because remember, by the end, 24,000 people die. That's more than live in the town where I pastored. That's a lot of people. It's ugly. And right in the middle of that, some guy comes prancing through with some very special Midianite woman who has standing in her clan. Kind of going, we do whatever we want around here. Y'all tent a meeting crying, a bunch of, boy, you just think God, God has no power over this. And he goes in his tent. And Phineas, the son of Eliezer, son of Aaron the priest, saw it. He rose, left the congregation, took a spear in his hand, went after the man of Israel into the chamber, and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. Hang on for this story so I can apply it. It says, And the Lord said to uh, Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy. Sounds like James, doesn't it? 
among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. And then he names the actual people that were evil. Isn't that horrible to have your name in Scripture that way? But it's to help you know this is no made-up story. This is not a little parable. This is a real deal in the lineage of Israel. This is a horrible moment. The real point, before they go and settle things with the Midianites for helping them stumble, the real point of the story is the atonement. Keep that in your head. Israel invited, if we go to the story, Israel invited then yoked themselves to Baal. I'm telling you, when we're friend of the world, like James would say, we are at enmity with God, which literally means we're his enemy. Did he sound like enemy to 24,000? Oh, yeah. Because he's jealous. He loves us. He sent his son to die for you. He is jealous for his son to get glory through your obedience, your belief. Moses, he carried out this punishment. He was a leader that cared about the holy righteousness of God. The chiefs and the judges of Israel, they were faithful, and they hung unfaithful chiefs. Zimri was the Israelite. Cosby, the Midianite woman, they were killed as an example. And they were sinning. They were idolatrous. They had rejected God. 24,000 dead from the plague. The weeping congregation of Israel, repentant, they're plagued. I think they're, they're at the tent of meeting. They're desiring holiness. They want the presence of God. They understand that's the satisfaction, not our idols. They're turning from that and saying, no, Lord, if I have you, and, and Christ has said to each of us as believers, I will never leave you or forsake you. He provides, as it says in 1 John, a propitiation or an atonement for our sin. He says, you shouldn't sin, but he says, if you do sin, the Son has come to give you a propitiation, an atonement. Why? So that we can have restored fellowship with Jesus. And we need to, in a sense, stand at our tent of meeting, which is our tent of meeting right here. Our body, our personage, with the Spirit of God in us. And say, I long for nothing else but that fellowship. Phineas. He had a godly jealousy. He's a picture of Christ. The difference in the gospel is Jesus is pierced for our sin. Make no mistake, the Lord is still jealous. And he, he's going to make peace. Phineas is that peacemaker. But it, in Jesus... The wrath is turned on himself. And he's pierced for us. Because let me tell you, many of you have sat in front of your computer and on your little phone, and it would have been totally appropriate. Matter of fact, it would be just for God to send a, a spear right through your back and into your computer. And it would have been just. Probably even more so because most of us in here have confessed Christ. And we've known the joy of his presence, and we've gone like this. But remember, in the context of these stories and of Corinthians, even impatience. So I go from adultery or immorality, which to us seems like really huge, and it is, 
But the other story is talking about impatience and saying, God, I want it my way. That's idolatry the same way. But Jesus, I mean, you need not fear the wrath of God and a spear going through you. And your pastor certainly should not actually do that, just so we're clear. Okay, make sure you keep Old Testament, New Testament, and gospel straight, okay? But we deserve that. The holiness of God requires that. That is why Christ died so horrendously for us. And I don't know your sins. I don't want to hear them all. I don't even know all of mine yet. I'm still learning. But I deserve, I don't know about you, it's very clear when I read what Paul's setting up in in Corinth. And let me tell you, Corinth was a mess. Some of them were like Moses and going, unlike Moses, they're going, I didn't, I haven't even stopped this evil. I didn't try and stop it. And Paul's having to write him and say, do you care about the holiness of God? You need to, you need to stop this quarreling among you. You need to stop the immorality that was actually going on. And there's a whole list of other things that show up in Corinth that are messed up. And he said, leaders, are you stopping those things? Are you valuing Again, within the basis of biblical authority and your responsibility and the way we should carry that out, we don't do that with spears, okay? But, but are we caring about it as authority? Are we understanding as a person the absolute depth of protection that the gospel has brought to you as a person? Because let me tell you, I deserve the spear, and I, don't even, I can't even imagine how many times it would have been appropriate. When I think about God in this story, understand this. He will not tolerate sexual immorality. It is idolatry. And he is capable of fierce anger. And I've seen believers sin. I've sinned. But I've seen believers sin that God came down really hard on in his chastisement because he loves believers to walk in holiness. Some of the situations that seemed like Oh, the the chastisement was so fierce to me. Those people that have had fierce chastisement who've repented, I've never had one of them come back to me as a pastor and say, I don't know why God was so hard on me. Truly repentant people never say that. Truly repentant people go, I deserve hell. And he has spared me even on earth this moment to now do what is right. I hope you're catching that about how the gospel is given that. We're all still sitting here, okay? And some of us had ongoing sin maybe when you walked in the room. Maybe, you know, I don't know. And God is, I mean, he stands at the ready to forgive you. And even in chastisement that he may bring. Because sometimes when we get repentant, then the hard stuff lands. But I'm telling you, when you're really repentant and humble, you never buck against that. You look at it and go, great, now I have reminders to stay on task with Jesus and allow his gospel to help me. Young people, old people, I have a friend who pastored in the villages down in Lakeland. I think it's officially called an old people's community, okay? And he would look at me, he pastored a GRBC church, and he said, you have no idea the amount of adultery that goes on in our church. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're all old. And he said, well, 
they have forgotten the things they taught their kids. They lose their spouse and they go to immorality. And it was rampant what he had to deal with. So let me tell you, there is no one who escapes the need to be on guard out of this message. I don't care your age. And every preacher in the room, I mean, every single one of us. And it's not always the immorality that is sexual. Let me tell you, in America, we love our money fiercely. And I mean, loads of grumpiness when COVID tanks investments. Complaining. Really? Are you impatient with God for how your finances are? I don't think that's a good idea. Are you loving that over the gift of the gospel in your life? He's capable of fierce anger. He is jealous for us, and we should be jealous for him. We should be guarding our heart with a, a holy jealousy so that it's his. And we ought to do that together, not in a judgmental or legalistic way, but in a genuine love for one another. We ought to promote. That's what makes camp so fun. Don't you realize that? There's just kind of an attitude of togetherness and living holy. Do you, do you feel that here? I haven't had anybody walk up and say, hey, want to sin with me? I mean, Steve Cox got a little close a couple times. Yeah, 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 okay. You know, but, <laughs> I mean, genu- it's true, isn't it? I mean, genuinely, I mean, here we are as believers, and, and, and we, we sit here together, and good is promoted, not just in the chapel. And we're talking about songs we've sung all week. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. Our, our dinner table was, man, it was awesome all week. Thank you, Huggins family and Owens. That was great. We enjoy that. We should be jealous to promote that wherever God is dispersing us next week. Because he's jealous for us. I love the, don't you love the fact he's jealous for us? I mean, I remember in our courtship, pre-courtship story, I remember the time that I saw jealousy in my wife. She wasn't my wife, okay? We were friends for quite a long time, and we were a little scared to date because every dating relationship ended in not nice, so I'm like, I don't want to lose a friend, and so I'm a little fearful, and I also thinking, she's so crazy beautiful, she couldn't really like me, right? I mean, I was pretty sure of that, and so I'm kind of treading carefully, and, but then this girl was flirting with me, and Jen was across the room, and there was fire in her eyes, <laughs> and I thought, yeah, baby, we're going the right, we're going the right direction now, right? And, uh, and we, I had to drive her home because she and another friend of mine, she, I said, you okay? She said, I'm fine. I'm like, you're not fine. It was one of my bolder, finer moments. I said, you're not fine. She goes, I'm fine. But there's another dude in the car, you know. I didn't want to spoil the moment. I said, I'll call you when I get back and I'll tell you what's wrong. Break accurate. And so I called her and I said, you're jealous, aren't you? She goes, yes, I was. I'm like, the rest is history, right? <laughs> Jealousy is intense, isn't it? It creates all kinds of things. Think about that. God, God loves us such as his kids. He wants you. I mean, that is, I just relax when I hear that. Just like I did with Jennifer. She was jealous. I'm like, okay, I'm good, right? 
I just relax, knowing God, God loves me that way. And man, there's times you wonder, does anybody else care? We all get to those spots. Married, unmarried, teenager, old person, doesn't matter. We get to those spots in our less finer moments because God is jealous for you. And when you sin, that jealousy is not nice. It can be fierce anger and chastisement, right? Because he loves you, ultimately. But boy, isn't it so good to know God is chasing me down and he's walking with me and he's guiding me. I mean, God is, God is jealous for us. This is a beautiful thing. He holds leaders responsible for the sin of the people. I'd tell you to ask the leaders of Israel, but they all got hung up. So, right? I mean, that's seriousness. And I don't think it's, any, it's changed any. I mean, he's writing to the leaders at Corinth. He's writing to the, the believers at Corinth. Family leaders, parents. We have responsibility. And he gives peace, John 14. Um, he gave peace. Uh, he says, not like the world do I give you. I give you peace, real peace. And to Phineas' family, he gave peace. Because of his jealousy, because of his pursuit of holiness, said, I'm, gonna, I'm bringing peace to your family. And that's what God has given through his son. And he's given a helper that keeps and establishes that peace that's beyond understanding. I don't say, I'm telling you, that is just so real that you ought not wander to idolatry. Lastly, he requires atonement. Um, God is, is holy and he's just. And so our sin, which is massive, in both the saved and the unsaved in this room, our sin is massive. And it cannot be blinked at by God. He cannot let it go. His anger is real because it's holy anger, just like his love is holy love. And so he atones. He provides an atonement. It's in front of us. And I guess the two things I would just end this service, end this part of the week of me speaking to you, I just want to use this word atonement to think two thoughts, okay, out of these stories. First, to the believer. The believer already knows this word atonement or something close to it. They've been taught, you know, that your sins are washed away. They've been paid for, atoned, they're covered is literally what it means, so that God does not see sin when he looks at you. And in Christ, we have perfect atonement that places us with absolute security as blameless before God and an entrance into heaven. That's his promise in Christ. And as a believer, if you're here and you know that and you're hearing it and you're, you're reestablishing it in your head so that you look at yourself correctly, so you look at your brother in Christ correctly, even the one sinning against you, that brother or sister who's sinning against you, you need to look at them and say, but they're atoned for. I know they're a believer. So I need to be careful. God has spent, he's been pierced for them. I best treat them with great care. And understand my position too. And that will, that will cause you to be patient instead of grumbling. So if you're a believer and you understand that atonement, apply that atonement of gospel and what it would mean then in your circumstances that I've been picking away at through Scripture all week. And I just ask you, and I'll ask you in a moment. Matter of fact, Chad, you can come. I just, I just ask you to ponder have I been treating that atonement cheaply? How it's applied to others, how it's applied to you. I mean, if there's sin ongoing, 
I just think it, you would be asking for fierce anger of God to not deal with that sin, brother, sister. You can deal with it tonight with God. We don't have to know about it. But usually someone else needs to. It's part of the brotherhood working together. And so I don't want to lead you down a path and then make you do something else. So I'm just telling you, if you're confessing those things tonight, where you realize I've been friend of world, I'm, I'm treating the atonement that keeps me from being pierced like Zimri. If you're treating it cheaply, I ask you to do business tonight, right where you are quietly as Chad starts to play, and, and be ready to speak to someone regarding that sin. Because as brothers and sisters, we need to pull together in our obedience to God. And then to those who may be here and you've heard the gospel many different ways this week and you maybe you don't understand how God pays for this and takes it away and gives you that peace that Phineas got that is eternal. Um, I just ask you tonight in just simplicity right where you are to ask God to forgive you of your sins, to repent, which the Bible says just turn, say, okay, that's... I, I must turn to Christ. I no longer can follow what I've been following. You may not even know what it was, but you say, I, I've not been following Christ. I'm not trusting in what he did on the cross for my, for my sin, but I'm trusting him now. I know he lived and he died for my sin on purpose as predicted. And he rose from the dead, which means his promise of everlasting life and peace is real. Just trust him in your seat right where you are.